Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back everyone, my name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host, Simon. And today we are going to be discussing another of George Orwell's essays. It's going to get a bit blue, it's going to get a bit spicy, a bit saucy, because today we are discussing the art of Donald McGill. But first of all, let's speak to the bluest, spiciest, sauciest man to come out of Lincolnshire since Isaac Newton. Simon, how are you doing, Simon? We met Margaret Thatcher's husband. <laughs> uh, I'm very well. Looking forward to today's podcast because um, I think last week's was really interesting, but it was... Uh, it was dry. It was it? dry, yeah. So hopefully today we can have a bit more fun. And, but life's good. How about you? Uh, not bad. I've got a couple of weeks of holiday left from work. And uh, I always look back at times like this and think, have I used my time wisely now? I've, uh, I've applied for a new Japanese visa, uh, I've cooked a lot of borscht, I've started a podcast. So I, th- I think that's enough, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. I, I started heroin. <laughs> no, apart from that, it's, it's all been good. I, I, think, think. I, think, I think you mean Drambui. I think you get, got confused there. So for, because today's podcast is a bit more lighthearted, we, we've been drinking wine and um, the most light-hearted of drinks. The most light-hearted. And now we're on to... We started with the gold standard. Now we're on to the silver standard. And it's French. And by the end of the evening, probably Blue Nun or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but today, like I said, we're going to be talking about Orwell's essay, The Art of Donald McGill. This was published in Horizon in September 1941. So actually, it's the earliest George Orwell essay we've done so far. Just off the bat, before we summarise the essay, Simon, what did you make of this essay? When you instructed me to read it, I initially thought it was just going to be a lot of fun, you know, reading about these postcards and maybe Orwell having a bit of fun with it. But upon reading it, he's actually got some very important points to make about society and and the human the human spirit yeah. while seeing it. So I was quite surprised with how serious it was. But... I really like the essay, and you introduced me to the postcards, and I've been looking at them and yeah, having a little chuckle. And we'll have uh, we'll talk a bit more like about that later. Um, let's start off with summarising the essay. Uh, at the beginning of the essay, George Orwell draws our attention to a subgenre of comic postcards. Now, for those born let's see, after 1995, postcards were very much the social (laughs) media of their day. Uh, You you often went on holiday somewhere and you sent a postcard to say, the weather is terrible, I'm nearly dead with the flu, wish you were the same, something like that. Do you remember the last postcard you sent? Actually, Well, you probably um, still send them. I I still send them. (laughs) Um, And uh, how about you? A long time. Uh, When my grandmother was alive. Yeah. But by the end, she was the only person I would send postcards to. I think, in a way, people like to get physical posts these days because apart from packages from well-known 
internet retailers. We don't receive much physical post these days, do we? Bills so, still coming from the post. Bills, yeah. So the letterbox has become a temple of doom, hasn't it, these mm-hmm. days? It's just... So um, I would say, you know, why not send a postcard? It's, it's a nice souvenir to keep. Uh, because you can take a photo, put it on Instagram with a caption underneath. True, but you'll forget about that, won't you? You can't, with a postcard, you know, it'll remind you of a place and time. And with something on Instagram, you might never return to that. Postcards is another typical thing that I mourn its decline. And I talk about how we should have it, but I don't do it. Well, you've got to make the effort, haven't you? Yeah, but I'm an eternal hypocrite. And the the easiness of what we do these days, as opposed to writing a postcard and sending it, I I just, I, I fall into that trap. I think the difference is, in the past, postcards were a method of communication, and now to send a postcard to someone is more like a present. Here you go, here is a thing that, a physical thing that comes from the place where I have been. And I think it means more. Well, the banality of postcard language used to annoy me Mm. as a young man as well. There's only so much, it it was the old version of Twitter. You've got a certain amount of words you can fit into this little space on the back of the card, and it was always just nonsense. Having fun, sunny. Wish you were here. Wish you were here. Have you watered the plants? Love, Simon. So Orwell draws our attention to a subgenre of comic postcards and the kind of humour they use. What kind of humour is it, Simon? You said it before, saucy. How would you define saucy for perhaps non-British listeners? Saucy humour, I would say, is based around the human body and the various parts of the human body and functions of the human body. Toilet humour, sex, mm. farting, this kind of thing. That kind of thing. So these are a kind of postcard called saucy seaside postcards. We might get into the seaside aspect later, but just so that any non-British listeners understand, these are postcards that from the 1900s, early 1900s to, say, the 70s, 80s, were often sent by people from seaside holidays in places like Brighton and Blackpool, um, places like that. Morecambe. Morecambe, uh, for the slightly more upmarket Lancastrian. (laughs) Uh, And these postcards often contain humour, cartoons based on, the, as Simon said, bodily functions. Is this humour current in Britain today, or is it simply part of our history? The the specific nuances of the humour probably is temporal, but it does live on. Like, Do you read this? Yes, I do, especially every time I go back for Christmas. I like to buy a copy, the Christmas copy of this. This, We should probably explain, this is a, a comic, British comic, that is published in the north of England, sort of Newcastle, Tyneside area. And uh, why don't you tell us a bit about that, Simon? Well, I love this. And I think it's the most uh, contemporary version of these postcards that we have, where it's delving deep into our subconscious and the humour we don't like to admit to make us laugh. Do do you have a favourite part of this? What I like the most about this is how they use the tropes of old-fashioned British comics, like the Beano and the Dandy that you and I grew up with, and our parents' generation grew up. I didn't really grow up with those magazines, but I was aware of them. Right, that's interesting, because yeah. I'm a wee bit younger than you. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was a regular reader of The Dandy. It's probably the first thing I read, apart from, you know, like 
children's books. Which of those comics was the character Swede from? That was Beano. I think probably the Beano. Yeah. It's quite an old one. I remember my dad told me when he joined the army as a 15-year-old, his nickname was Swede. <laughs> because he was from the countryside, and I think maybe his accent really stuck out from all these streetwise Londoners. Which shows you how much these comics were part of British popular culture, yeah. doesn't and it? And Plug. Plug. Plug, yes, yes, I remember. It was Plug. also called Plug. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't know, it's not that's not complimentary. No. Big nose, big ears, skinny frame, I uh, think. <laughs> Plug, I mean, Plug's name comes from the uh, phrase in English, Plug Ugly. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Dad. I've not, I've not met your dad, but I'm really looking forward to meeting him now. Yeah, these looks come from my mum. <laughs> well, my favourite part of the viz are the letters, the letter block it's called. And if you don't mind, can I read off a few of them? Please do. I really enjoy them a lot and hopefully the listeners can, can get this humour. So this is from Christina Martin, who sent this in by email, saying, L'Oreal keep claiming they fight the seven signs of ageing. Does that include becoming more right-wing? Because that's the really problematic one. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. I, I walked into B&Q the other day, and this bloke in an orange and black uniform asked me if I wanted decking. Fortunately, I got the first punch in, and that was that. <laughs> but others may not be as lucky, so be on your guard. Next one. This is from Selvan Decky, sent in on Twitter. Pretend you're on the set of Michael Jackson's Thriller by going to Weatherspoons at 10am. <laughs> <laughs> and this one from Nick Jones in Sheffield. When people talk about David Beckham, they always say that he's a brilliant footballer but thick as two short planks. You never hear anyone saying that Stephen Hawking was a genius but shite at football, do you? As usual, it's one rule for England football captains and another for theoretical quantum physicists. <laughs> and finally, one more. Regarding the issue of whether Gibraltar should join Spain or remain part of Britain, if I lived there, I would opt to join with Spain. Just think how much better the weather would be. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, why did reading this essay make you think of those, those letters, those jokes? Because... They reminded me of what I will coin pub humour. Mm. Me and my mates down the pub having a few drinks. That's the kind of humour we would laugh at. Those kind of jokes, that sardonic wit. And looking at these postcards when you showed me them, reading the essay, it kind of reminded me of that. As I guess guys in the 30s down the pub would be laughing at those postcards the same way, same way you and I were chuckling at those letters. And I think we'll get into that kind of humour and its origins and its social background later. So where did we get to? We got to Orwell describing the postcards and uh, he categorises the major tropes and topics of those postcards. Again, we'll return to this. He then places the cards in a social context uh, and finally he puts the cards into an international, historical and even philosophical context which gives these cards a kind of dignity and gives this humour a kind of dignity. So Lewis, as, as the co-host, I'd like to bring something up and it's the elephant in the room. And I think people that have read this essay probably are thinking the same. What about the offensive language in this essay? And are there taints of xenophobia? There is certainly some offensive language in this essay. On 
about two or three occasions, Orwell uses language in this essay which we would now consider to be offensive language. Simon and I are not going to give excuses for this language. We're not going to explain it away by saying, oh, he was born in 1903 and he died in 1950. But I think what we really need to do is to put this language in context and think about why Orwell is using it. First of all, very early on in the essay, Orwell uses a phrase, we are not going to, we're, we're not going to repeat any of this language, but Orwell uses the phrase N-word minstrels. But he's not using it from his own viewpoint, he's just describing it. Yes, but we have to, I think we have to really remember that Orwell was a man who knew about the power of words, he understood the power of words, and he was an anti-colonialist. He was quite forward-thinking for his time, and yet he's using the N-word quite indiscriminately here. Yeah. Um, I think we need to put this word in context, don't we? I mean... In 1941, and this is not an excuse, it what did not have the same impact in British society it has now. Look at the film Dam Busters. When was that mm. filmed? In the late 40s? I think it was actually after the war in the 50s. 50s. Maybe. And the name of the dog is the N-word, and no one blinked an eye. And now they have to edit it out, for obvious reasons. That's quite uh, true. Although I have read other Orwell essays where he uses this word but, for example, the, word, the essay Democracy in the British Army, where he uses this word, but he puts it in inverted commas. So I think mm. he knew about the power of this word. I think... Did, did he know that putting anything in inverted commas is a modern excuse for bigotry? Well, probably not, because he died <laughs> 70 years ago. But let, let's just have a think about this word. He, he mentions N-word minstrels and... Uh, in, in what context? In though? the context of, he's saying that these postcards have, they're all part of the atmosphere of the seaside. And I'm quoting here, like N-word minstrels or peppermint rock. Um, these postcards, have we, as we've mentioned before, were often sold at the seaside and people used them as souvenirs. This is Orwell very much trying to put the postcards in a particular context. And at that time, I haven't actually mentioned, but... Uh, those who are not from an English-speaking country will probably be wondering, what do you even mean by minstrels? Um, at that time, uh, since about the middle of the 19th century, um, there, there was this very popular musical art form called minstrelsy, where white people uh, put on makeup to make themselves look like African-Americans, and they sang these very silly, sentimental songs about life in the deep south and uh, this was a very popular working class and lower middle class form of entertainment from about 1850 to the 1970s it was even on tv well in the 1970s they were still selling dollywogs yes yes in the um, shops which is a, a doll which is is black in color uh, with frizzy hair it's a stereotypical, it's a stereotypical image. image and even the name is yes yes you know. so Again, like I say, we're not making excuses for Orwell here, but he's using this word to put these cards in a particular context. And I think that his use of the word, a lot of people these days, especially in the last couple of years with the Black Lives Matter movement, have liked to argue that racism is not uh, systematic, that racism is a failure of personal morality. But I think actually... 
um, we can learn from Orwell's use of the this offensive word because for ev for a man as clued up as Orwell was about race and about imperialism, for a man like him to use a word indiscriminately like that, I think it shows that racism is actually a systematic problem uh, because even someone who ought to be better informed was using an offensive word because it was considered uh, acceptable in the system of the time, which was a and, racist and, and system. And personal usage is influenced by what systematic practices are current in, at the time. Yes. So, so, it, it, so if within the system, use of that word is prominent, then personal usage will be influenced by that. So yeah. I think racism is systematic. Yeah. And it's at that level that we have to tackle it, as opposed to individual personal usage. Because I think that reflects, I think it's from the top down mm -hmm. with regards to racism. So we can say it's not, yeah. not acceptable, but it is reflective of how Orwell lived in a racist society, or at least a society where racism was not questioned yeah. the way it is today. The other word that he uses... But anyway, is... welcome to the podcast on how to... Solve the problems of the world, yes. by Lewis and Simon. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think. I but should... this is interesting, and if people who are listening, I, this is the kind of debate we'd love to have. Mm. Like, if you want to write in, or we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Orwellpod at gmail .com is the address. Um, I think debate at the level we're at is is important for this issue, isn't it? It is. It is. Because politicians don't seem to be having this enough. This kind of debate. And if you are a person of color who is also an Orwell fan, we would love to hear from you and hear about how you square your love of Orwell with offensive language like this in his essays. Yeah. May I just mention, Simon, one more word that he uses, which is uh, a word beginning with H. And he says, the women in these pictures have bottoms like H, and the word begins with H. And this word at that time was used to refer to a specific tribe or ethnic group within South Africa. But these days, it's considered a slur. Uh, I believe the people it refers to these days are known as the Koekoe people. And again, this is just a, an example of how even a man like Orwell, who is anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist, has grown up in a colonialist and imperialist society and has been affected by the, uh, the discourse of of that world and that time. So again, we're not making excuses, but I think we can use unfortunate language like this as a kind of learning opportunity again. Yeah, it's important to say that when not being apologists for Orwell's language, he, he said it, and that's for us all to debate. And he had his flaws, but you can put this into context. Okay, now uh, let's get back to the laughs. <laughs> um, <laughs> these cards are by an artist called Donald McGill, and they're part of a wider subgenre of postcards known as the saucy seaside postcard in British culture. Simon, what do you think of the social context of this subgenre? I see it as an inflection of the working class. I think Orwell, in all his works, is, is intrigued. He's not working class himself, but he's intrigued by the working class and the mechanics of the working class. And these postcards for him are reflecting the subgenre of humour and self-introspection within that class. You know, the, the mother-in-law humour, how your wife is a battle axe. And, and he, I think he concludes that this reflects on a comic level 
the working class outlook that on youth and adventure and how it ends at 25 and and how individual life is over with marriage because marriage is a big theme isn't it yeah so i think in the in the middle and upper classes particularly at this time marriage is more it's quite often transactional tactical political mm. but in the working class it, it never it's, it never bears that responsibility it, it's just seen as something you do well until the early 20th century I think there was this idea that the working class is married for love and the upper class is married for money. I think that was very common, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, but he, I don't know if he, he's if Donald McGill is representing marriage as love. A kind of, uh, maybe more of a... Companionship. Companionship or even a kind of sanctification of lust. Um, yeah. Fulfilling your, as we said before, bodily functions. I think in Donald McGill's postcards, marriage begins with the best intentions, but very quickly becomes something that in reality is dour, suppressed, frustrating, and damn right unsexy. Tell me, Lewis, how is married life? <laughs> married life is great, thank you. Okay. Um, if you had to make a postcard of your married life. it would. I don't know, Borscht would be involved somehow, but... Um, <laughs> you mentioned the class element there. Do you think there's a slight class condescension in Orwell's description of these cards and of their humour? I don't think there's a class condescension in Orwell's description, but I think in his description he describes class condescension within the working class. Because particularly the upper working class and lower middle class looking down on the lower working class and people who are living in the street, people who are doing jobs which are not, which are frowned upon by society. You say that, but very early on in the essay, he's talking about these cards from an aesthetic point of view, and he uses these words like crude drawing and unbearable colours. He talks about how these are, you know, these are definitely obscene and vulgar. It, it just made me think very much of Orwell's upper middle class origins and he's trying to he's trying to justify his his interest in this genre but he, he's also he's a bit disgusted by them and by the humor isn't he but I, so you're associating art with class and aesthetic beauty with class and you think Orwell is because I don't think he is I think he do, I don't think he appreciated them as as uh, artifacts within an aesthetic value I don't think he's relating the art to class. I just don't think he thinks this art is highbrow. And for him, art is something which is more aesthetically challenging. I'm certain that Orwell would have appreciated or did appreciate Lowry, for example. So that's depicting working class environment, but in an artistic aesthetic that he probably would have appreciated. So that's why I'm relating it to the aesthetic, because it's bright colours and exaggerated body forms. I just don't think Orwell appreciates that as an art form. Mm. Let's go back to the nature of these cards. So these cards were produced by a man called Donald McGill. He was a very successful artist. He was quite a respectable man in himself. And let's think about how Orwell categorised these cards. So Simon, how, what were the different categorizations that he gave to these cards? Sex, home life, drunkenness, toilet jokes, snobbery within the working class, 
stereotypical figures and topical politico-social fads. And for him, they featured illegitimacy, the mother-in-law, the hen-pecked husband, the middle-aged drunk, chamber pots, the nervous clergyman who says the wrong thing, and an endless succession of fat women in tight bathing dresses. And they're, they're Orwell's words, not mine. Orwell says that um, more than half, I'm quoting him here, more than half, perhaps three quarters of the jokes are sex jokes. And they centre around particularly Ill illegitimacy, newlyweds, old maids, nude statues, women in bathing dresses. And again, to quote Orwell, the conventions of these kinds of jokes are that marriage only benefits the women and... Simon laughing, not me. Uh, and sex appeal vanishes at about the age of 25. Ha ha ha. Again, me laughing, not Simon. Um, Simon, is the sexual morality... So, actually, let's go back to, to what Orwell says about the, the morality behind these cards. Later on, he points out that these kinds of cards, the humour that these cards uh, rely on, the humour really relies on, as he puts it, stable society in which marriage is indissoluble and family loyalty taken for granted. So these cards wouldn't exist if the society at the time hadn't been quite a conservative one. Yeah. Do you think these days we are still living with this kind of society? And do you think that this kind of humour is still prevalent these days? Well, what... I found interesting was how he talked about the evolution of this form of humour. So if you look at Shakespeare, it's full of smut. And I've got a couple of examples for you. So in Henry V, Act 2, Scene 1, the character Pistol quotes, says, says uh, Pistol's cock is up and flashing fire will follow. <laughs> and if you look at Titus Andronicus in Act 4, Chiron says, Thou hast undone our mother. To which Aaron replies, villain, I have done thy mother. <laughs> that still works, doesn't it? So usually you hear... This the, is Shakespeare. Yes, usually they say the jokes in Shakespeare don't work anymore, but that last one <laughs> yeah, is pretty good. Yeah, they do. And, and they're not subtle. Mm. And, and in Shakespearean language, that was very much not subtle. And then we go forward a few hundred years to the early 20th century, where this humour is prevalent. But then in the 50s, towards the end of McGill's life, he's, he's censored. I mean, he's actually called up yes. to answer in a tribunal. The about obscenity this. trial. Yeah, yeah. Donald McGill, uh, we should say, uh, in the 50s, was brought to trial because of the humour in a lot of his cards, which these days look quite tame. But uh, at that time, people could actually take him to court for it. Whereas now in 2021, I think you have to be very careful with what you say in a supposedly humorous manner, because people can or are offended, can be or are offended. But then if you go to a stand-up show or watch a stand-up show special, they're still pretty risque. Yes, and I think in Britain in particular, saucy humour, humour relying on, on sex, on bodily functions, I think it's become the norm, really. Because um, I listen to, to Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, which is... For anyone who is not British, that is like the, the gold standard of British broadcasting. <laughs> and, let, and yet, listen to a Radio 4 comedy show that is broadcast at midday on a Sunday to mostly middle-aged people, 
and prematurely middle-aged people like me, and you will hear what 50 years ago would have been considered smut. Yeah. You know, innuendo, sex jokes, toilet jokes. But you, how, how big it nowadays is the disparity between what we can call banter, like down the pub or in a cafe with your friends, and public eye humour? Is there a disparity between it? I think it all depends on context and you really... I, I think, again, social media is the great divider because you can make a joke amongst like-minded people and those like-minded people will know that you are not a despicable person. Mm. But if if you're just shouting your joke out the window, which is what putting a joke on Twitter is, then uh, it can be taken completely the wrong way. Because Donald McGill, when uh, drawing the postcards, said that he was just reflecting what he heard at the musicals. So these postcards were reflecting humour at the, at the base level amongst people sat together chatting away. What do you make of a, a big issue in humour these days is uh, race and xenophobia and Orwell actually points out that in these cards racism and xenophobia don't really figure at all. The most mm -hmm. xenophobic aspect of these cards is the prevalence of the joke about Scotsmen either being tight-fisted misers misers or wearing nothing under their kilts um what... how was the grand canyon formed by the way i don't know how was scotsman dropped a penny down a crack God. did you did you know speaking as a scotsman did you know we give more to charity than any other gr ethnic group in the uk i keep telling you the pub is not a charity <laughs> yet it is at the moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll get on to that when we do the moon underwater but um oh god i'm looking forward to that podcast yeah. i'm we, looking forward to getting in a pub again could, could that be our first live cast the moon underwater let's have a think about that yeah. get in a few bottles of london pride or have our listeners you know, let us know what you think yes love to hear from you yeah. uh would you like to hear us live Trust me, it's not as good as edited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe better, but just not as acceptable. What do you make of the absence, according to Orwell, of racist or xenophobic jokes amongst this kind of humour? I see this as temporal, because Orwell mentions how there were some Jewish jokes until 1935. Yes. Now, what's happening in 1935 in Europe? Oh, yes. Nazism is prevalent and it's become aware that they are persecuting Jews. So that just isn't funny anymore. And it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And I often find this about xenophobic humour. People dismiss it as just banter until an event happens where it becomes distinctly apparent that that banter reflects a really, really dark reality. Mm -hmm. As happens here with the... with um, the Holocaust. We might also note again, coming back to the modern day, that um, we would think that you couldn't make jokes about foreign nations anymore. But again, listen to mainstream comedy on things like Radio 4, Radio 2 in Britain. There are so many jokes about the French. There yeah. are so many jokes about the Belgians or the Germans, even the Italians. And it seems the nearer the nation is to you, the more acceptable it is to make jokes about them. And I think with regards to Radio 4, 
or any British institution making jokes about other Europeans is, it, it seems acceptable because it's not a reflection of ourselves. Whereas we are a country with an imperial past, and that causes us to reflect upon ourselves. And making jokes about ethnicities, races, or creeds that were the large majority of our empire becomes all too real as to the horrors of our actions within that imperial time. Now, we've come across Orwell being nostalgic before in The Decline of the English Murder. Do you think he's being nostalgic in this essay? Nostalgic for what? Well, he points out after he's described these cards that these cards remind you, again quoting Orwell, remind you of the barely different postcards which you probably gazed at in your childhood. And later he goes on to point out how the political views of the cards reflect the early 1900s when he was a, a young man or a child. So do you think he's, he's trying to justify his love as an intellectual? He's trying to justify his love through something that's a, a pleasure from his past? He's definitely being nostalgic because these postcards would have been the postcards of his youth. So he's definitely being nostalgic, but I don't think he's justifying them as an intellectual. I think he's remembering them, having probably bumped into them again on some visit to Brighton or something, and is analysing them. So I prefer the word analyse to justify. I just think now he's older and he's an established writer, he's thinking, why did I appreciate these cards when I was a kid? What do they mean? What did they mean to me? What do they mean to society? Where do they come from? But why analyse? Why is this man who came up with all of these really perceptive uh, ideas about the nature of totalitarianism, about the way the English language ought to be used, why is this man spending his time writing about simple and rather basic working class humour entertainments? He wants to know why they're popular. I, we, I think we've established he doesn't appreciate the art form. He's looking at it and saying, why do these sell? Because they're not aesthetically particularly pleasing. You can buy a postcard of Rembrandt if you want. So why? And, and the, the captions underneath are not desperately witty, are they? They're pretty predictable. So I think he's asking himself, why do they sell? Why are they popular? And then not only does he ask why they sell, and, and justify it by explaining that they... Well, the way he relates it to popularity is he, he says these really reflect the, the morals of the working classes, doesn't he? And the idea that the working classes are basically conservative in a way, that they want their stable marriage, their comfortable house, their 2.4 children. I disagree that the working class is inherently conservative. You see, humour is subversive, but power is fueled by conventionalism. So by its very nature, humour is in a dichotomous relationship with power relations, okay? So humour about the human body, it's subversive to what we can call biopower. And I don't want to get too wordy, but biopower it's a concept from Michel Foucault where he talks about how institutions, governments use the body as a form of control. 
Now we can look at that through welfare, birth control, um, views on sex and things like that. So humour about the body is subversive to that form of control. Hence it's contrarian. So I don't think the working class is conservative by nature. I think by nature, like the rest of us, they have that roguish element in them, which is suppressed by elements of power. And that humour is their way to, I think Orwell terms it as rebellion against the virtue. Yes, and perhaps from this point on, we can start thinking about that form of rebellion against virtue. Again, to quote Orwell, he writes, there is no sign in any of these cards of any attempt to induce an outlook acceptable to the ruling class. And Orwell theorises that these cards represent what he calls the Sancho Panza view of life. How would you define the Sancho Panza view of life, Simon? For me, Sancho Panza view of life would be a survival instinct and earthy wit. It's more towards the spectrum of buffoonery and vulgarity. Yes, and survival not only meaning uh, getting your next meal, avoiding anything war, life, service to a great ideology that would endanger your life, but also uh, repro reproduction and pleasure, really. I'm fascinated in this duel between the body and the soul, human instinct against what you, what you deem to be respectability and goals in your life. I wonder if we can find a quote that really sums this up Orwell writes, I never read the proclamations of generals before battle, the speeches of führers and prime ministers, the solidarity songs of public schools and left-wing political parties, national anthems, temperance tracts, papal encyclicals, and sermons against gambling and contraception, without seeming to hear in the background a chorus of raspberries. <laughs> and if anyone doesn't know what a raspberry sounds like... <laughs> Like that. Sorry, Simon. Do you, do you want a handkerchief? <laughs> Chorus of raspberries from all the millions of common men to whom these high sentiments make no appeal. I couldn't agree with anything Orwell has said more than what I agree with this. I remember once I was playing for like Winchester Thirds at rugby, okay, on some sodden, muddy pitch in Basingstoke. And the captain of the team got us in the huddle before the game and he was telling us about how we have to respect the brotherhood and look out for each other in the trenches. And I was just thinking, I just want to win a rugby match, mate. I, Go and have a pint. Yeah, it, it, it had no effect on me whatsoever. It really did not inspire me to go on and play. I, I, I'm competitive and I enjoy playing rugby and that was, that was it. And here we were, a bunch of overweight guys who couldn't get in the second team, being told that this was our award, this was our Passchendaele. I, it's never appealed to me. I despise national anthems. I never sing the British national anthem. Not because I'm anti-British, I just find it ridiculous. Talking about a deity to save a non-elected representative. But, yeah, I couldn't agree with him anymore. So Orwell says these cards, he, he puts these cards into context by saying they represent a view of life which is all about the individual 
the freedom of the individual over ideology and the individual wanting to preserve their life and their experience of life over subordinating their life to an ideology. Let's put this into context. Why would he be setting up this divide between the individual and the higher-minded collective? Why would he be setting this up at the time this essay was being written in 1941? Well, it's 1941 when he's writing this. So Churchill's been in power for, what, six months? And he's starting to give these famous radio speeches about we'll fight them on the beaches, the Battle of Britain has just been raging. So people are looking for comfort in the face of defeat, in the face of extreme depravity. And that's coming from promises of blood, sweat and toil. And they're also seeing all around them slogans telling them to dig deep, to dig for Britain and this kind of thing. So they're, they're reverting to that for comfort. So the mundane pleasures of their everyday life are secondary to to grandiose speeches. And... Well, let's not forget that right after Orwell says that there's this chorus of raspberries, ordinary people listening to their Führers, their great leaders, and saying, that's a load of rubbish, we just want our beer and we want to have a good time. He says, and to quote Orwell, nevertheless, the high sentiments always win in the end. Leaders who offer blood, toil, tears and sweat always get more out of their followers than those who offer safety and a good time. When it comes to the pinch, human beings are heroic. Women face childbed and the scrubbing brush. Revolutionaries keep their mouths shut in the torture chamber. Battleships go down with their guns still firing and their decks are awash. It is only that the other element in man, the lazy, cowardly, debt-bilking adulterer, who is inside all of us, can never be suppressed altogether and needs a hearing occasionally. Orwell is saying, we are dualistic creatures. Within us, we have the noble and the base, the Don Quixote who wants to go charging at windmills, and the <laughs> Sancho Panza, who just wants to stay in the pub drinking his pint and, yeah. and fondling the barmaid. That, who, that's all of us. Who turns out to be the idiot in Don Quixote? Sancho Panza. But at the end of the book? Well, you tell me. Quixote is the idiot. Quixote is the one chasing ghosts, whereas Sancho Panza is the one who, at the end of the book, it kind of wins out. So do you think... By using that analogy, Orwell is saying that this grand, grandiose manner of what we call highbrow society is all just hot air, and that the earthy postcards that we appreciate is what it's all about, really. I think Orwell is saying that both are necessary. Again, yeah. let's take it back to the time, 1941. Is he justifying his own middle class here? I think he is justifying, maybe not his class position... Or excusing but his own position within the upper middle class. I, I don't know if it's his class position. I think it's his political position. Because let's think about his political position. Remember that he mentioned there the revolutionaries who keep their mouths shut in the torture chamber. This was 1941. There was still very... There was still all to play for in the Second World War, in the great fight between democracy and fascism. Well, I in 41, things aren't looking great for the Allies. No. 
So the Americans have just come in, but it's just been a, a string of defeats so far. So he, he's sort of a defeatist attitude. He's trying to counter it in all his writings at the time. Yes, and let's think of, again, going back to the war, who, us, who have grown up in the wake of the war, what are the really... How long was a wake last war? I was born in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our parents grew up right Our parents grew up in the wake and of the war. And they, culturally, they affected us. Yeah. Let's think about the, the key images of the war. There's Churchill, there's the fight against the worst ideology ever known to humankind, but there is also the spin, you know, like Private Walker from Dad's Army, the, yeah. the guy who'll get you get you some meat cheap off the ration. And I thought the, spin was the guy that would sleep with married women while their husbands were away at war. Oh, that might be an army thing. Yeah, I, I always thought that's what a spiv was. The way I saw it when I was growing up was the spiv was the guy who would get stuff off the black market oh, okay. and sell it to you. But Was that the masher, I'm thinking? Getting into very esoteric terminology <laughs> yeah. here. 40s morphological dictionary mm -hmm. being read out here. In the war, people were living this through this dichotomy. On the one hand, they were defending their country... They were fighting against fascism, but at the same time, they were living with their base instincts. They wanted a pint of beer. They wanted a bit of fun with the barmaid. They were living through this dichotomy. And I think this is what the essay represents. This dichotomy between a moment in time when you have to reconcile your noble feelings of wanting to fight fascism and, and uh, fight for freedom and sacrifice your desires for the common good and the Sancho Panza view of life the guy who wants to run away from the action and just hide behind a tree and have a drink and and have an easy life but how does that fit into these postcards because although he says they stand for the worm's eye view of life I don't know how the postcards reflect Sancho Panza well, because these postcards represent a, a, a conservative yet humorous working class view of life where it's accepted that, you know, everyone wants sex, everyone wants... But they're, they're a contrarian view of, of the establishment. A yes. Con a contrarian view of the conservative establishment. So how is that going to be beneficial in a time of war when we all need to pull together with no dissent? Because these are cloaked dissent, aren't they, these postcards? They're cloaked dissent, but what Orwell is saying, that this is part of the human condition, you can't do away with it, but you need to give it an airing so that it doesn't smother the other side of human nature. So, so where is the Duke of Wellington's worm's eye view? Where is Churchill's worm's eye view? Well, you tell me. I, I struggle to see it. Well, that's the point, because these... So where's their dichotomy of, of dualism? Well, there, there's no dichotomy, because they are the great men. They are the higher side of the mind. They, they represent the, the higher side of the mind that wishes to... Grandiose respectability. Yes, the grandiose society, respectability. Yeah. But Orwell's point is that we need both 
to come together. And so it's not a dualism within us, but a dualism within society. It's a dualism within society. And again, I think... See, I read it as a dualism within, within ourselves. I, th I think it is a dualism. So Churchill also, when, when the microphone was switched off, would fart in the bath. Yes. And count the bubbles. And, and have a drink. And yeah. And your man down the pub who's drunk eight pints and just been talking about farting in the bath... When he gets home, he imagines himself leading the army into battle and giving a speech before so. Exactly. Yeah. But that's Orwell's point, that if we want to defeat the enemy, if we want to move on to progress, we need to accept that we are both of these things and both sides of the human psyche should get an equal hearing. Yeah. But, um, but what wins out, what influences one aspect of this dual fight winning out over the other? Is it contextual? Is, is it built upon history, your surroundings? I think it is contextual. Yeah. But Simon, is this Sancho Panza view of life, the debt-bilking adulterer, the guy who likes a drink, the and, and let's not forget this is a very kind of male figure, the Sancho Panza figure, is he alive and well in the 21st century? Very much so. Have you ever been to, ever been to a working man's club? No. It might not surprise you to hear, no. <laughs> I'm very much a champagne socialist. <laughs> okay, have we ever seen, let's say, for example, um, what's that Peter K series? Phoenix Nights. Mm. Have you ever seen that? I'd recommend you to watch it. It's a depiction of the working man's club. And... It is still alive, although working man's clubs are dying, it's still, it's still alive today. It really much is. I go and sit in a Weatherspoons on a, on a weekday afternoon and you'll hear it. Well, something we haven't spoken about in this is the issue of gender. Yes. And the depiction of women in, in the postcards. Mm. If we ever return to this, I think it would be very interesting to get a woman's point of view on yeah, this. Yeah. Because, again, Sancho Panza, a male figure... Don Quixote, a male figure. Yeah. And, and notoriously, the subjects of a lot of the postcards are women with an oversized mm. particular body part, which is the... Why do I have to say it? So I don't get cancelled. Um, <laughs> curves? The, the behind. Yes. Why in these postcards is the woman inevitably bent forward and possesses an oversized uh, derriere Orwell makes the interesting point that at that time in Britain, women were very skinny. Of course, we just come through the 30s, the Depression, people not having much food to eat. And so he argues that this is kind of the Englishman's secret fantasy of a very well-filled out woman. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak to that because I, I'm not a man from the 30s. Because it, it represented times of more wealth, mm. of more food to go around. Lewis, when you were reading this essay, or in, in any, on any occasion you read this essay, did it spark any nostalgia within yourself? It did, but I would say it was a kind of second-hand nostalgia, because this kind of humour, it's still part of British culture, but I think it's kind of on its way out to a certain extent. It reminded me very much of the Carry On films. Yeah, It's something that's very much of our parents' generation that we're familiar with, but future generations, I think it's uh, it's probably on its way out. What would you say? 
Well, for me, within this essay, there were very, I got sparked for nostalgic thoughts by various things, like in the opening paragraph where he mentions going to Woolworths. Do you remember Woolworths? I remember Woolworths. Uh, Woolworths was a big part of my youth. When I went to school, I used to go to Woolworths every day to get some pick and mix and buy, oh, yes. buy the latest single released by my favourite artist. Bill Haley. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Shadows. But Woolworths is gone now, hasn't it? It has. Yeah, it's gone. But it was such a huge part of my youth. And yeah, little things like that made me nostalgic. Nostalgia is such an easy trap to fall into. I think Orwell falls into it sometimes, doesn't he? So falling into that well of nostalgia, in my personal experiences, it's been mostly positive, just remembering good times and innocent times. But it can be negative, can't it? If you're nostalgic about postcards, which are inherently sexist, misogynistic, misogynistic, at times hints of xenophobia. So what, what is that? What kind of nostalgia is that? That's a very good question, and you've rather left me holding the baby, I think. (laughs) And how how does that reflect upon his worldview at this time? It's no doubt problematic, but the thing with these postcards is I think they're very much of a time. I sent you, before we started recording this, I sent you an email with several of these postcards attached, and I wondered what your reaction to them would be. I noticed that most of them, because I was there when you saw them for the first time, you you had a chuckle for most of them, didn't you? But, you know, I feel there's a cut-off point. I kind of feel that anyone born after 1996, 2000, they might look at these cards and it will be as alien as reading Chaucer. But do you know one of the things I can't stand? We're not going to do an episode of Room 101. Day, but I would put into Room 101 people saying, well, I wasn't born then. So we say, oh, do you like the Rolling Stones? I was born in 1995. How yes. should I know? That? Well, I like Mozart and I wasn't born in 1700. True, true. So I, I never see that as an excuse for anything. Yes, I'm, I always get very annoyed when, I, when people make very easy jokes about how primitive people born before 1990 were. Yeah. Um, you know, when you hear people saying... Completely the, misreading that exactly. modern technology has primitized them even more than mm. they care to wish. No, you're <laughs> quite right there. Simon, finishing up, is humour ultimately apolitical? No. All discourse is based on knowledge and power and a form of genealogy and history. And that includes politics. Everything we say, everything we utter, all meaning has history, which is influenced by knowledge and power. So no, it's definitely not apolitical, in my opinion. When Orwell was writing, he clearly thinks of humour as something you can use to counter totalitarianism. The dictators, the generals, the prime ministers, they say, die for your country. And the Sancho Panza says, I'd rather have a pint. I'd rather sleep with the barmaid, etc, etc. Do you think in the modern day, humour has actually taken on a more conservative function? In Orwell's time, it was anti-totalitarian, but I think of humour now, and a lot of people defend their unacceptable comments by saying, oh, it was only a joke. Well, humour still takes on a contrarian role in countering what we deem to be 
irresponsible conservative measures. There's still satirical articles written, satirical cartoons drawn in newspapers to, to counter what politicians deem to be correct. But I do find now that humour is used more as a reflection of things that happen in society as opposed to a counter to it. You mentioned contrarianism there. I mean, the death of the musical. Yes. And that, that, that kind of public institution that was alive and well at the time of Orwell writing this essay has changed the localization of humour. You think that it's much more global? Yeah. It, a joke can be put on Twitter and reached by millions within an instant. And miscommunicated as yeah. well. I, lo- I enjoy watching spectator sports. And as you're watching the sport, pe- famous people within that sport are constantly commentating on Twitter in real time and often in a humorous way. And it's instant. The, the event hasn't even unfolded whilst humour is being used to portray what is happening before us. So I think there's a whole new dynamic to how we use humour these days to, to portray society. These cards came out of a very specific time, a working class society that believed ultimately in quite conservative values in marriage, chastity, in things like that. Adultery. Adultery. Chastity and adultery, two rather different things. Although there's not much adultery, is there, Miss Cards? It's more about the man who comes home, comes home drunk and yes. gets poked in the ribs by his wife hiding behind the door. And we didn't really, considering the fact we're, we're having a drink while talking about this, we didn't talk that much about <laughs> drunkenness. Um, it's heavily prevalent in the, in the postcards. Again, men drinking and women, women having to suffer the consequences but men's drinking is portrayed in a negative light. They are buffoons for having consumed so much alcohol, and women are the poor souls that have to suffer as a result. Exactly. Buffoons for not facing up to reality. Yeah. Escapism. Um, so I think we can conclude that this kind of humour is still prevalent in British yeah. society in a different way. I have a feeling that if I showed these cards to anyone born after the year 2000, they might view them as being as quaint as some of the obscure puns in Shakespeare. Yeah. For the listeners, what we'll do is we, we will post some of the postcards on our Instagram account and Facebook page. So having listened to this, they can then go and look at some of what we've been talking about and make their own opinions. Yes, and if you even just Google Donald McGill postcards, you'll find so many examples. Contrary to Orwell's rather sniffy uh comments he was a rather good artist a rather good illustrator but we'd rather you went onto our instagram page to uh page to to view them because then we get greater possibility of being sponsored by drumboo yes uh drumboo is great please send us a crate of it Um, what's this (laughs) wine we've been drinking some french and red french red nonsense and the more expensive one tasted better than cheap one it's all right send us the Send us a crate of the expenses. So if the mayor of Bordeaux is listening, (laughs) we are are open to sponsorship. Uh, Bordeaux's all right. Send us half a crate. Okay, I I think we can leave it there, can't we? I'm aware that many people listening may not be British. You may look at these cards and think, what's the joke? But They'll have their own equivalents, I imagine. Yes, I'm sure. I would encourage them from whatever country they come from, whatever culture they come from, seek out equivalents. Think about those equivalents, because 
Orwell, Orwell puts them in an international tradition, and that tradition exists across the world and through time. Think about all those, all that low comedy in your culture about smacked bottoms and toilet humour and... Thanks everyone. You've been listening to Orwellian. We are on various platforms, are we not, Simon? We're on Apple Pods. Google Podcasts. Uh, we're Spotify, on YouTube, uh, and also we would really Audible, love, Amazon. Audible, Amazon. We would really love to hear from you, everyone. Our email address is orwellpod at gmail.com. So thanks for listening, everyone. Next week, we will be reading the essay Spilling the Spanish Beans, which is Simon's choice. Yeah, I've chosen this because it's it's particularly interesting topic for me, and it's one of the series we'll do. We won't do them chronologically. We'll do them chronologically but we won't do them back to back. But this will be an introduction to Orwell's involvement in the Spanish Civil War. So if you're reading along, read Spilling the Spanish Beans, and we will convene again to discuss it next week. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, and as we always like to say, Orwell, that ends well. Oh, dear. <laughs>